Alright, you're probably expecting me to gush about this episode. Nah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I do like this episode. It's probably one of the better tension, you know, suspense, action episodes so far. Um, th there is a caveat, okay? And I want to get this out of the way up front so I can talk about the A plot and ignore the B plot. Oh, I also need to correct myself. I made a stink uh, one episode ago, two episodes ago. Uh, Fortunate Son, with regards to the nav buoy, or the, excuse me, the com buoy. Turns out that was actually com buoy one that they were using. And in fact, they were dropping com buoy two in this episode. That's on me. I made a mistake. In fact, if anything, that's continuing that whole setting continuity thing I've mentioned several times as being kind of awesome. The fact that they're keeping track of that and that they already dropped a buoy, which is how they were able to communicate with Earth, is kind of neat. Still think it should have been a one-way communication thing, but as I've said many times, I think they advanced the tech level a little bit too quickly in this in this show, and I think that's problematic. Sorry, I stuttered there because I was about to say in this episode, which I do think this is true. I think this is too early for phase cannons. I do. Maybe some kind of low-level something, but these are portrayed as the big guns, and with good reason. Whatever. Moving on. Let's let's get the bat out of the way. You ever... One of the episodes I constantly reference when it comes to Star Trek Ruminations is The Swarm. Because The Swarm had an A-plot, which was the, you know, we've got to save the ship from The Swarm, which was dumb and stupid and boring and awful, in my opinion. And then we have the B-plot, which was the Doctor was losing his memory and they have to deal with it, and it's this big, awesome character piece, which was awesome and amazing. It was an episode that was bipolar. Half of it I really liked, and half of it I really did not. I could also mention The Neutral Zone over in TNG for a similar example of this. That is exactly this episode, except in this case it's not half. I wanted to do some math, because I like to quantify things. Um, somewhat recently, from my perspective, I did a review stream on The Last of Us... No, wrong game. No, it was... Um, no, it was. It was. It was The Last of Us 2. Now, that game was relatively short. In fact, you know what? Hang on. Let me give you figures. So we're going to get a bit of glare here, but I've got stuff here. So, Last of Us 2 was a 21.88-hour game. Not that long. Not really. Not that long later, I played Ghost of Tsushima, which was a 40.25-hour game. Now, Ghost of Tsushima felt shorter, and I never got bored of playing it. Whereas by con... Well, I mean, I got bored of going from point A to point B, but that, that's a separate campaign. The game itself felt shorter than the game that was about half its length. Now... <laughs> that is important to keep in mind, because how you use length is what matters. Yeah, yeah, sex joke, but seriously, it is what you do with the length that actually does matter when it comes to any fictional work. Movie, book, game, show, play, song, poem, da anyways, so as you're going through, sorry, I'm, I'm just goofy today, as you're going through, Sometimes it's it's just like, oh my god, oh my god, I'm halfway through the episode, I barely even noticed the time passing, because it was really engaging or interesting. And sometimes I feel like the episode's just dragging on, because it's not. I got to about the two-thirds point of this episode, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to quantify. Because it feels like the B-plot, which is the Hoshi trying to find the favorite food of Reed plot, 
was just dragging and there were several long sequential scenes about it which made me think that maybe it actually was longer now i cut out any time that was spent on an unrelated point to either the plots there's a few moments which are just character building or world building like the bit with natalie and tucker for example and i cut out most of the action shots of just the ship doing a panning you know just to the establishing shots i cut out most of those that leaves us with 30 minutes and 30 seconds of the A-plot. That's the threat of the Alachi. By the way, I'm going to call the aliens the Alachi in this because it's easier than calling them unknown aliens. Cool. Cool. I could call them the Kavalin. Anyways. And 13 minutes and 39 seconds of the B-plot, which is Hosey trying to figure out what's going on with Reed. Now that's about an accurate spread. Two-thirds of the episode is devoted towards the big threat of the week, and one-third is devoted towards the character thing. Okay, that's fine. And that's a good spread for an A-plot, B-plot. But as I already prefaced this whole conversation with, um, it is what you use in that length that really matters. This is the first time since I have actually been re-watching this, for this time, for these ruminations, where I have wanted to skip through scenes because the Hoshi trying to figure out the food thing was that disinteresting to me. And thus it dragged. Now, um, I don't mean to, you know, uh, critique with, uh, criticize without critiquing. I do have an alternate idea here. But before I jump into that, I want to mention a couple of things. So first of all, why Hoshi? You've just encountered a new alien race, and you're trying to figure out something about them, and you decide to send your comms officer to go and deal with the pineapple issue with someone's upcoming birthday. Huh? No, I'll tell you exactly what happens, although this is, again, speculation, not codified fact, but I'll, what's happening here is they've already started running out of things for Hoshi to do, and she is quickly being shuffled down from B-list cast, B cast member to C-list, the same general thing that happened to many other actors in Star Trek, most of them female. Anyways. So, naturally, um, what we have is a lot of focus on that, and I don't, I don't want to talk about it that much, you know, ha-ha, she's flirting with him, but he, it's just a misunderstanding, isn't that funny? Or the fact that nobody seems to know him well enough, including his, uh, his sister, or his old friend, or maybe his parents. His mother doesn't know his favorite food. I, I roll to disbelieve? I mean, at least you could have said it was his favorite food from back in the day, but then, you know, tastes change, and we haven't talked that much. Also, by the way, the dad's disdain about this and mentioning that he used to be part of the Royal Navy really got my mind going about a topic I'm not going to dissolve into because I have other things to talk about in this episode. But I do have to mention I love the idea that Earth is not united yet. Oh, sure, we have a star fleet, but that's probably more like a coalition thing under, say, NATO or the UN. Because there's still a Royal Navy. There's still a British Royal Navy, as in um, terrestrial, as in in the ocean. That just, oh, there's so many ideas that that evokes within me that I would love to discuss. Oh, I don't think I got it. Fruit flies. I hate fruit flies. They, they come after the carrots. 
And they're like, oh, nom nom, we are here to irritate you. That is our purpose in existing. But if I'm going to talk about fruit flies, I have to talk about Hoshi. That's a terrible segue, Lore. I was going to say I have to talk about the Royal Navy, but then I just realized I don't actually want to talk about that. Again, I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff that can be said about a non-unified planet. I mean, Babylon 5 did that. But let me just erase the B-plot for a second. Can I just do that? Okay. Because as I was going through, I suddenly realized why the B-plot exists. Because the B-plot is about Reed. A character which we don't know much about. In fact, one of the character lines from Archer is, we don't know that much about him. Which is true for both the creators and us, the viewers. This is one of those unfortunate things about early Enterprise, and arguably most shows in general. What's Travis's characterization now, at this point? He's from space. What's Reed's characterization? He's into weapons. Other than the main three, most of the characters haven't been they, they haven't been fleshed out enough to actually be characters yet. So on the surface of it, I'm actually totally with this idea. Well, this is a Reed episode. Let's flesh out Reed. The problem is they don't. We hear some backstory for him, which is not very well done and not very interesting, but that's about it. We also find out that he is a very driven workaholic who absolutely is pushing himself constantly and those around him. But that's nothing new. So, you wanted to st spend more time on Reed, and you failed at it. Congratulations. Um, I've talked before about the idea of non-characters, and that's very quickly what he's drifting into here. And more importantly, so is Hoshi. What's Hoshi's character? <sighs> Anyways. Bef I'm just going to ignore the B-plot with one one last comment. I wouldn't have Hoshi be involved in this at all. I would have it be about Reed. They just got a bundle of messages from Earth, right? Have him have a message from his parents. It's pre-recorded. There's no conversation back and forth. We We get the thing about the Royal Navy. Maybe there's a quiet thing about how uncomfortable the dad is. But while the mother's trying to clearly be friendly like overly friendly, so we get the idea of how troubled that relationship is. You know, the, the, the dad not getting along with the mother being the peacemaker. Maybe a message, and maybe later on he gets a message from his sister, and she laments how, you know, they haven't actually talked in a while, thus showing that they are much closer, and, you know, she wishes that she would be able to keep up, but of course she couldn't, and blah, blah, blah. Now hear me out. I'd do one other little change, restructuring of the story. I'd make Natalie Reed's girlfriend instead of Tucker's. Really. First of all, while it's a good scene, it's it's the only scene not it's the only single scene not devoted to the A plot or B plot in this episode, and it's actually quite well handled. So I don't want to dismiss that. But I think having this ex-girlfriend who has decided that long distance is too much, breaking things off with Reed would be more useful for this. Let me try and explain why. First of all, it shows that Reed, for all his, you know, I'm in, you know, I'm a Marine, let's call it what it is, you know, sailors will be sailors kind of a thing. Truth be told, he does have someone that he had been waiting for back home. 
This will actually come up in ShuttlePod 1 as well. So I would use this same person, Natalie, or, or whoever. We could also still keep the Natalie thing and just have another girlfriend for uh, read, but I'd rather not repeat myself here. So, like I said, just replace and restructure in the story so that one of the letters he sends, he's, he's writing down for when they find his corpse, is to her. I would also have this come up in the future several times. Uh, make it so they continue to have friendly relations. Make it so they keep talking to each other every now and again. Have him reference it every now and again. And in this episode, this is important, we would find out a little bit about her, maybe in terms of an actual flashback back on Earth. Maybe just in terms of him remembering things as he's encountering a certain particular problem with regards to getting the, the guns working. Because what I would do is I would structure it so that she was his equal. That the, the two of them made an excellent team. And together they entered Starfleet. It's just he was the one assigned to the spaceship. She's the one back at dock. And make it so that that commitment is something that helps push him. Because this is another thing. You need to marry the B-plot to the A-plot somehow. There's a lot of ways to do this, and we've talked about this since Voyager, which was years ago at this point. But, you know, this came up on TNG, this came up on DS9, that's coming up here. There are plenty of ways to do this. The way I would do it is I would have his drive and motivation in this episode come from his memories, fond memories, of her pushing him of how much, how much they gelled together and how well they worked together and how much of that drive came from her. And spoilers for Season 4 of Enterprise. This will only be about a minute, so if you want to mute me, just mute me for about a minute, okay? I'll hold my hand up. As soon as I lower my hand, we're no longer spoiling, okay? I would have it so that she is why, or he is why, she would be in Section 31 just like Reed was. The way I would do it is probably that she recruited him into it, as she was already a part of it. But we could do it the other way, too. He recruits her. And thus, when he ended up deciding to focus on his military career and kind of bowed out of Section 31, that then proved to be the initial rift that led to him accepting a ship post, which led to them finally breaking up. Either way, I think this restructuring would work a lot better and give us more actual insight to the character. You'll notice I didn't really go into the character that much either. Uh, I'll admit that's because I didn't even think about that aspect. But I would have there be more character there, actual moments of developing him out, rather than food preferences. Let's talk about the A-plot, which is much more interesting. They find an enemy ship. They can't scan it at all. Its shields block all scans. That's awesome. The, the number one really big thing that always strikes human fear is the unknown. So we've got this big evil-looking ship, which is... Okay, I mentioned the Cavalli and the Alachi thing earlier. I'm going to keep calling them the Alachi, but this ship is the same type and approach and model that they used in... Uh, Somewhere in Season 3, I forget which, where they call them Kavalans. Now, the Kavalans are basically non-entities which are not fleshed out either, which is why I just kind of throw that out the window, just like STO did, and I just say that these are Alachi. And I'm going to keep doing that going forward, just FYI. Anyways, so, <clears throat> the Alachi ship shows up. They have these really powerful shields, and they can't figure out anything about them. They shoot at them as they leave, and the damage is not exactly small awesome. Then they do this really invasive scan. 
I really like that. So scanners, in Star Trek, we've always just kind of accepted that scanning is sort of a passive thing, but generally speaking, the concept of scanning, which is a real-life concept, involves uh, you know, detecting specific types of radio waves or putting out specific waves and then figuring out what the result is of that, either with a bounce back or whatever, right? What I love is the idea of something that is so... like The idea that the more detailed and accurate information you want, the more invasive the scan has to be, to the point where it gets to the point where the person being scanned can literally physically feel the scan happening, like what happens here in this episode. It's actually something I used in my own setting. Uh, there's these airships, Magitech airships, that have very accurate, ludicrously accurate scanners, but if you scan everyone is going to know you scanned because it's this really obvious you know that goes through you as it sends out these magical rays which then re respond and in so doing it is very invasive like i just mentioned just let's just like the alachi scanners here so i love that concept and it probably get them tons of information not just about the ship but exactly how the ship works which would explain why they were able to disable people in a way that caused them brain damage and nearly blow up the ship with a very carefully placed piece of sabotage. So, they're very damaged. Uh, Tucker almost got killed, and Archer says, okay, let's turn around, let's go home. This kind of pisses me off a little bit. I do like the A-plot of this episode, but you'll notice how, once again, it's they're doing some very severe slanting. Because this is portrayed as a defeat. Oh, we have to go back home. Why is that a defeat? Like I, I actually legitimately don't understand that. You guys left in an unfinished ship before you were ready to go. A point that's actually brought up in this episode. So going back for the occasional checkup isn't exactly a big deal. The Enterprise D did that semi-regularly. It's called maintenance. Why is this a big deal? And they're all like, oh, I just I didn't want to go back so soon, and it's so horrible, and blah, 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 blah. Um, okay. Then they're like, we're totally going to install these phase cannons in two days instead of a week, which is ludicrous, but I'm not going to question it. Let's just move on. Then they get attacked again. This time the Alachi actually shut down their power. Uh, quick question. How does she know that they're opening the shuttle bay with no readout and no power? Anyway, so they attack. And there's this actually really wonderfully creepy bit. This is why I consider this a good episode. Because for all the nonsense that's in it, the way they use the Alachi is brilliant. We see them just walking by the corridor. At 21 minutes and 44 seconds is the first time they show up. And it's incredibly creepy. Then we see them invasively scanning humans, which of course causes them brain damage. Might have been intentional, might not have. We don't know. We then try to talk to them. That doesn't have anything. Then we shoot them, which doesn't do anything. Then we shoot them in higher power, which does nothing. All of This is all done in a corridor where all the lights are off. So all they have is a flashlight. This is wonderfully creepy and really gets across the, the most important aspect and the theme of the episode. You are massively outgunned. It's also worth noting, this is actually really important. They turned tail and ran, but the Alachi ship caught up to them. Hey, it's that speed problem from Fortunate Son again. 
Because the problem is, even if you turn and gun it back home, if the most you can manage is warp 5, or excuse me, warp 3, someone who can go warp 5 is going to catch you. Especially if they want to. So there's no running. And there's no fighting back. And you're screwed. This then puts Archer into a wonderful position of being completely on the back foot in every way. And having no idea of exactly how to deal with it. So, okay, cool. Why don't... It's also really worth noting, by the way, this is admittedly a bit plot pointy, but the only reason that they're okay, the only reason they survive whatsoever, is because the Alachi leave. If they had just stayed on the ship right there, captured a bunch of people, and started reproducing with them, it's not that bad. What they do is they bathe you with spores until you are slowly converted into one of them. So I guess it's actually worse than that. It's supposed to be pretty horrific. So if they had just decided to capture the crew and convert them and take the ship, they could have. They didn't because inexplicable. Now, this is probably the one weak point of that because they let them go because we need to have the heroes live. It's the classic thing, right? <laughs> I have defeated you. I am the villain. And I have beaten you, and now you're laying helpless before me. Now I'm going to leave, because I've already won. In a few weeks you can come back after leveling up for a few hours, and then you can finally match me. But right now you're meaningless. <laughs> and sometimes that can be done well, and sometimes that can be done weirdly. But either way, I do think it works okay here, because it adds to the overall what-the-heck-is-going-on-with-these-things thing. It is very important by the writer to never actually reveal the motivations of the Alachi, and I do like that. I think it's to the strength of the episode. Never naming them, never giving any idea of their hint of what they want or why they want it. In fact, the only communication they ever have is brilliant, because Archer gives this big defiant speech, which is not great, and then towards the end they play back edited portions of his speech back to them, you are defenseless, surrender your ship. That's a nice touch. And that's as much as we get to communication. This is a classic sci-fi horror story. Now, I'm overselling it a little bit, but I do want to stress that I really do like the theme and over uh, the overall approach here. There's even this great bit where Archer... You know, Travis is like, I bet they... <sighs> You're on attack. I bet we, if we call Vulcan High Command, they'd be more than happy to send someone. Archer's like, I'm sure they would. <sighs> and he looks around... Looks at T'Pol, walks over to Hochi, and just kind of sighs a bit. And I like that. He never actually admits it. He never actually swallows his pride verbally, but he does get across the idea that, okay, fine, this is serious enough. Let's call the Vulcans for help. Oh, guess what? The Kambuis are gone because they blew them up. You are now stranded in every way. No communication, no running, no fighting back. Now... That is really horrifying. So, <clears throat> Reed heads, uh, butts up... Oh yeah, by the way, they showcase the idea that torpedoes aren't really all that great against shields. I've actually mentioned this a few times before. That is a really recurrent element in Star Trek, so much so that virtually every Star Trek game uses the same format. Shields need to be taken down by energy weapons. Hull needs to be taken down by projectile weapons. The aforementioned STO does that as well, but it's not the only one that does that. This is recurrent across almost all of Star Trek, so I kind of like that they keep that here. It's the Alachi's shields, but their torpedoes do nothing against them until they can get their shields down with the phase cannons and then actually damage them with the torpedoes. See, so that's, that's kind of neat. 
I still think they shouldn't have phase cannons, but whatever. By the way, the only reason I don't think they should have phase cannons is because there's just an unfortunate trend in Enterprise the show to just kind of have modern tech, as in modern Trek tech, you know, TNG, DS9, and Voyager-era tech in Enterprise. And it's like, I really liked that low-tech thing and that limited-tech thing, and it's just been fading rapid-fire. We're up to, what, episode 10? And it's already basically gone. Anyways. So, Reed butts heads with Tucker. Tucker then clamps down says, no, it's the chief engineer's call. This isn't safe. We're not going to take shortcuts that are going to risk people's lives. Okay, I'm absolutely with that. Then he goes and talks to Archer. And damn it, episode, I was liking the A-plot so much. Because then Archer is like, I, you know, I, I'm an idiot, and I launched into space early, and blah, blah, blah. And then Tucker says, no, you were right! You, Janeway, were right to go ahead and launch early because, you know, and the funny thing is the reasoning given is, A, because then Klang wouldn't be dead. I'll come back to that in a second. And B, because astronauts shouldn't be afraid to take risks. That's not an argument. Neither of those are an argument. You could say the Klang thing, but the Klang thing makes no sense whatsoever when you realize that what could have happened is then the Enterprise could have turned around and gone right back to Earth and been finished being set up, which they could have done, and should have done. But no, why don't you stay out there in your broken jalopy? The second reason that this irritates me is the idea of taking risks being a good thing. Now you're probably thinking, Lore, you're an idiot, and you're right. Taking risks can be a good thing, but the problem is that is an invalid equation. Risks are not a positive or a negative. They are a natural part of existence. You always take risks doing everything. It's not that taking risks is good or bad. It is simply life. So it's not that you should be, you should be unafraid to take risks because that's stupid. That's like saying you should drop all of your money on, on the next lottery ticket because you're being brave and taking risks. No, that's just stupid. It is what you do with how you take risks that actually matters. Thus, risk isn't even, like I said, it's not even really part of the equation. So, I feel like I'm describing this so badly. The point is, Tucker's argument is not. So he's wrong, and then he says something unrelated. This then leads to Archer, who is now right. Convincing himself that he is right. That's important. Keep that in mind for later, because... The next thing that happens is Tucker then goes to Reed and says, You are right to take risks, because taking risks is right. So take risks. So two days pass. No contact from the Alachi. How convenient. They go to try out the phase cannons, which then overload like crazy. I, I kind of like that, actually. Now here's the thing. The episode came very close to bringing me right back into really liking the A-plot. It failed, but it came really close. See... They overloaded the phase cannons by effectively dumping far too much energy into them, way more than was safe, and blew out many things in doing so. This causes a lot of damage to the ship, but results in a very damaging shot. You probably already see where I'm going with this. So towards the end, they shoot the normal phase cannons, which don't do much against the enemy shields. Now... If we're being honest, what should have happened is an actual battle where they just shoot and shoot and try to pull down the shields, but let's ignore that for a second. What they need is the big gun. They need this because they need it now. So intentionally override them. 
Okay, that makes perfect sense. And you know what? That sounds kind of cool. Hear me out. What if this was their nuclear option? What if this was something where they had the phase cannons, you know, they're installed now, <laughs> somehow, Starfleet engineers, rocks, replicators. So they have the phase cannons, and they have you know, they can use them, but if they ever need something really, really big, if things are really bad, and they need to hit the nuke button, they can overcharge those suckers, which will cause damage to their ship and blow out relays and force them to, to stop for repairs, but it gives them one really big hit. Think about that. Ignore Now, obviously, that appeals to me as a video game player because risk-reward. Hey, risk! But the idea then becomes that this becomes a narrative tool as well. This allows you to vary up the kind of threats they face. And, in fact, this could be a thing that comes up in the future. Oh, God, the Klingon ships, you know, it's... We're doing okay, sir. Hull's fine for the most part because hull planning is shielding. But we're having some issues. Should we overload the haze cannons? No. No, I don't think this this skull's for We're already pretty damaged. I think that might be a, a bit of an issue. That's a good point, sir. Okay, let's go ahead and push for it. Imagine if they have the overload option in Season 3. Imagine if some of the damage done to them in Season 3 was from overloading deliberately against the Zindi. That's why I say the episode came very close to pulling me back into liking it. But no, they just compensate. Okay. Then the episode pisses me off. This is why I'm kind of winding down a little bit here. Because while I do like this episode... It ends on two terrible notes. The, the the first terrible note, or rather the second terrible note, is, Hey, it's pineapple cake. I already said my piece there, so we're just going to move on. The first point it ends on is, Well, I don't see any reason to go back now. Do any of you? And to Paul is the one, of course, who says no. So they say, All right, well, we're going to turn right around and drop a message buoy and keep going. I wanted to smack him. You are woefully unprepared for what's out here in a ship that is not properly set up or supplied and has just undertaken extensive damage over several days and can sure use some time to get some fresh supplies and retro and, and refit in order to fix all that crap but no no we're fine let's just keep going because we're voyager and we can just make up repairs on the fly one of the things that irritated me most about voyager was the absence of setting continuity the torpedoes, the shuttles, the damage to the ship, none of that meant anything. Because none of it stayed from one episode to the next. Now, I don't know if that's true in Enterprise. Remember, I don't really know Season 1 and 2 all that well. But it, I have a very strong feeling that all of the damage and all of the work done in this episode will be forgotten in every episode after this, other than the fact that now they have phasers. And that's a damn shame. At the very least, you could have had several episodes with them trying to deal with limping through space. And I'm pretty sure they actually do something with that in uh, Minefield, I want to say. It's one of the only episodes I remember distinctly, because it leads to the Bolana Taurus space station episode. But those are vague memories for another time. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next time. Ooh, Carrot's my favorite!